Hey, hey, hey! Welcome back, everybody. This is Hoptimus with the Retro Futures Culture Podcast. Today, we're going to be breaking down the 1982 classic John Carpenter film, The Thing, starring Kurt Russell. Uh, I have some very, very special guests. I want to give a special shout out. I've got two of the guys from Ruminations of Red Room. I've got Kyle with the K and Ian, aka E Squared. How are you, gentlemen, doing? You did it. You did it today. I'm doing great. I'm doing. I'm doing fine. I'm finally on the RFC, which is pretty exciting. I usually talk first on Red Room, so I'm gonna let Ian take it away on this one. <laughs> oh, I am. I am very hyped to to talk about this movie. I I don't think I've ever had a ever had a conversation about this film. To be honest. Oh shit! This is gonna be yeah. epic then. Awesome. That's so awesome. Um, I love you guys' show. I, I've been on at least one episode yep. <laughs> of Red Rum. And uh, uh, I don't listen to all the episodes, but just know that I love your show. And I'm very proud to be uh, on the same network with you guys on Ruminations Radio. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I'd like to do more collabs in the future. I thought this was the perfect movie to do a collaboration with because I'm a huge John Carpenter fan. This is a little bit more horror, but it's still kind of sci-fi retro future. And I thought, let's get, let's get you guys on here because I think that would be really fun. Hell yeah, I'm excited. Absolutely. Hell yeah. All right, man. Well, let's just get into, let's just do like a little, like, uh, we're just, uh, before we get into what the movie's about, like, do you have any initial memories or the first time you saw this or even heard of this? What's your first memory of the 1982, the thing? Um, I can go first since I'm the youngest, obviously I have a bit of a different, uh, take on uh, this film, but, uh, 23 years old, right? So this movie came out almost 40 years ago 40 years ago today right um yeah it's pretty close so it's uh, about 20 years um older than i am and i watched it uh when i was about 19 18 and uh for the first time and i was still working at gamestop with kyle and uh it was it was a really really good day it was um in october had that you had the the spooky vibes you had just me watching it alone, figuring things out, and uh, yeah, it's just a very fun memory. That's awesome, Kyle. What's your first memory or impression of the thing? Man, well, mine goes back a little further. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, my first John Carpenter movie I ever saw, um, which I know this is going to be um, this is going to hurt a lot of people to say, but it it was Escape from L.A. <laughs> And there's nothing, you know what? Anybody's first John Carpenter movie is a win. Yeah, man. Right? Because that's like the gateway drug. You watch one John Carpenter movie and you're like, what else has this guy done? Oh my God, look at all these cool movies. And then you just got to watch them all. Yeah, yeah. So, like, my first experience was seeing Escape from LA in theaters with my dad. Nice. And um, I, I just fucking loved it. I had no, like, knowledge of the director or anything like that. I was still too young to even, like, pay attention to those kind of things. But, um, a few years later, uh, there was this like hole in the wall, like family owned video store by my mom's work. And I would always skate down there on my summer vacation and just rent a shit ton of movies and watch them. And nice. I think I was in like seventh grade during this time. And, um, I would go there and rent just like a shit ton of horror movies because the guy like didn't care about our age and he would rent us anything. Like I could probably walk into like the red band section, like, or the porn section and he'd probably let me do it. But um, one day I picked up the thing, took it home and was completely blown away, um, freaked out, terrified. And it wasn't until way later that I made the connection that, you know, he made escape from LA and escape from New York and all those other movies. And then I fell in love with him and went down a huge rabbit hole. But it was during the summer of like my seventh grade, um, school. And it was, yeah, it was awesome. Ever since I've been watching it almost once a year. Nice. Yeah, it's it's almost become an annual thing for me too. Um, I want to say I first saw part of it on cable when I was a kid. I actually, I mean, I was born in '77, so um, I am Whoa. as older older than this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but I really didn't. It really didn't grab me because I only saw like part of it, and I was like, "This is f- 
fucking freaky. What is this? And I was like, oh, it's John Carpenter, Halloween guy. Okay, yeah, that's cool. But later when the DVD came out in like 1998, 99, whenever the first DVD version of it hit, that is when I sat down and watched it. And I said, holy crap, this is like a masterpiece. This is an amazing bit of filmmaking that was highly underrated when it came mm-hmm. out. Um, and as a lot of cult films are, as time goes on, more and more people look at this and go, how did this movie fail? Well, at the time, E.T., I think, had just come out. And I really think that that skewed the view for what the thing was. Like, everybody was in like, yay, aliens are cool. Let's all do happy and drink Pepsi and eat Reese's Pieces. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then they watch the thing and go, what the fuck? <laughs> so... So um, this was one of the first DVDs that came out because I remember '99. Like the only thing I remember is like everybody talking about the Matrix being on DVD, but like I didn't remember this. Right. Well, so the DVD players dropped in '97. So somewhere it was. I just remember Universal was one of the first companies to really drop a bunch of their catalog on um, DVD. And I just remember when that I happened to be at Circuit Seat or something where when the thing came out, and I was like, whoa. Because I saw the cover and I remembered seeing that bit of it when I was a kid. And by this point, I had fallen in love with John Carpenter because of Big Trouble in Little China, They Live, Escape from New York. You know, uh, I had just seen Escape from L.A. pretty recently. Mm -hmm. That came out in 96. So stuff like that. And uh, so it was around that time. I couldn't give you... I'd have to look it up, but I just remember when I when I when the DVD finally came out and I watched it, I was like, "Wow, this is really good." But since we're talking about that, let's uh, let's break into it. So we're talking about the thing, 1982 American science fiction horror film directed by John Carpenter, written by Bill Lancaster, based on the 1938 book "Who Goes There" by John W. Campbell Jr. Um, that same book was adapted into the original thing from Another World that Howard Hawks did that you watched earlier today. Yes. Uh, you were telling me. I did, yeah. Um, this particular version, John Carpenter wanted to get closer to the story in the book, uh, closer to the themes. Anyway, it's a story of a group of American researchers in Antarctica who encounter a thing, a parasitic extraterrestrial life form that assimilates and imitates other organisms. The group is overcome by paranoia and conflict as they learn they can no longer trust each other. And one of them may be the thing. Uh, yeah. Killer killer idea for story. Very well executed. Uh, we've got Kurt Russell. Uh, Wilford Brimley without his trademark handlebar mustache. Yeah. Uh, TK Carter, Dave Cleaning, Keith David, Richard Dreisart, Charles... Charles Hallahan, Peter Maloney, Richard Misser, Donald Moffat, Joel Pil- Polis, and Thomas G. Waits. And there's not a single female in the movie except for the voice of the chess computer that's uh, John Carpenter's wife at the time, Adrian Barbeau's voice. Oh, yeah. When he, when he pours <laughs> the whiskey on it and says, kidding. Yes, <laughs> yes. That's great. Unlike the yeah. thing from Another World where it did have... The women. I don't know how like uh, accurate that was to the book, but um, there was a lot of similarities and a lot of differences that I thought were cool. Mm-hmm. I th- I want to say the book has a lot more. I read the book like probably shortly after I had gotten that DVD. I read the story again, uh, but that was twenty years ago, and there was a lot more characters in the book. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and I think they pared it down you know, for budget cost and focus reasons. But uh, let's break into the story a little bit and we can go scene by scene and kind of talk about things that are really cool and what really uh, blows us away. I mean, um, this whole movie is cool. It's a John Carpenter flick. So. <laughs> right. And yeah. Um, so uh, the first shot, that opening shot where you see just like the spacecraft come across the screen and uh, it looks sort of like a typical ufo but then you've got like the oscillating lights and it moves kind of weird and it lands and you get that cool logo where it burns up the font where it says the thing like i feel like not enough movies do cool stuff like that in their intros anymore and it just like sets the tone for that you're gonna see something special and then the next thing we see is uh, a helicopter pursuing a sled dog and these guys have like you know, sniper rifles are trying to shoot this dog and they're coming across an American research station. And 
the Americans notice the helicopter lands and there's a guy running out with an assault rifle and the other helicopter pilot who's Norwegian uh, drops a grenade and blows up the own helicopter and himself. <laughs> and then the other pilot just starts trying to shoot this dog and he's cussing in Norwegian and he's, he's, he's trying to hit the dog so much that he shoots one of the Americans. And at that point, um, the Americans fire back with uh, the station commander, Gary pulling out his handgun um, and that's just really intense because you're like, why are they chasing this dog? Like, what is going on? If only that um, other, if only the Norwegians spoke English, this whole movie would have a different outcome. <laughs> true. <laughs> but, right. Uh, well, maybe. Yeah, that's true, I guess. Maybe. Um, maybe. I, dude, it sets the tone perfectly with the score, too. Like, the theme for the thing, just that low, like, pulsating, like, doom, doom. What's interesting is that he hired Ennio Morcone to do the music, right? This guy's famous. He did the biggest spaghetti westerns. I mean, he's done a ton of really famous movie scores. He hires him to do this score, and basically, it sounds like John Carpenter did the score himself because, you know, he does a lot of his own soundtracks. (laughs) There are moments that it's Morcone. But that that main beat, probably Carpenter said, I want something like this. And Marcone just said, sure, I'll do that. But yeah, it's that uh, it's a very John Carpenter kind of a soundtrack. Yeah, it was very similar to uh, Escape from New York, in my opinion. And Assault on yes, Precinct 13. Yes. Um, that first shot, I almost didn't realize what I was watching uh, with the helicopter chasing the dog. I was I was wondering is the dog chasing something is the is there like a invisible alien but then once they like land and they're they they're actually shooting at the dog I'm like oh okay okay I'm I'm into it Mhm Yeah so then the Americans decide to go check out the Norwegian base and RJ McCready played by Kurt Russell and Dr. Copper leave and they get there and among the charred runes and frozen corpses they find the buried remains of a malformed humanoid, which they recover to the American station. They also find like that, almost like a coffin where they, it looks like they dug something up and their biologist Blair, that's Wilfred Brimley without his uh, trademark handlebar mustache performs autopsies in the remains and finds inside these weird mutated bodies, normal set of human organs. Um, that when I remember when I first saw that on cable, the the whole autopsy scene, I was like, that is gross. <laughs> it's just like cutting these blob mutated human things and pulling organs out. Yeah, the whole ice encasing thing, like the ice coffin, like it's very it's almost like taken straight out of the original movie too. So I like how he kind of kept a lot of like visual pieces from the first film because he yeah. was a fan of it too. And he's a huge Howard Hawks fan in general. Yeah. Uh Carpenter is. So like everything down to like the saucer down to the casing that you know the creature was in, like that's all pretty much like shot for shot. Like it looks the same, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah, they did do a cool job with that. So uh the Americans have the dog and you know, the dog's running around, the guy's like, Hey Clark, can you get get this dog, put it in the kennel and he puts the dog in the kennel and then it gets in there and at first it just lays down and then the other dogs start to figure out, hey, this this thing isn't one of us and starts growling and it metamorphosizes and absorbs the other dogs. And uh, they all hear the noise. The guys come running. Uh, they pull the alarm. Childs gets a flamethrower to incinerate the thing. And at this point, like we got to talk about Rob Bottin's effects because mm-hmm. this guy was a whiz kid. Dude was 22. 22 what? years old. Yeah. He was maybe when it released, I think he was 20 when he started working on yeah, the movie. That's crazy. He was super young, enthusiastic, and smart as a whip and really into effects. And that's how a lot of those early, like, you look at the guys that did all of the model building and the camera building and all the stuff for the original Star Wars movies. They were all kids, they were all like under 25. Yeah. It was like, what? Uh, but yeah, Rob Boutin's practical effects are quite amazing. I know that Stan Winston helped with uh, one scene there with uh, 
with the dog. But other than that, the whole movie is Rob Bottin's like effects. And if you have the Blu-ray or the 4K of the thing, there's a documentary. And I think it's even on the old DVD, this whole like hour and 45 minute documentary about the making of the movie. And there's a good 45 minute section just where they talk about how they did all these effect shots. It's pretty cool. Well, I mean, that's yeah, um, a big part of the, the film for sure. Yeah, and they uh, they hold up pretty well. I mean, you can tell that they're that it's a movie and that they're effects, but because they're made practically and they're lit in shot in camera, they don't stick out like say '90s sci-fi horror movie CG effects or do. like Escape from LA right? CG. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, right? Yeah, that has. That has some pretty like questionable CG, but that was at an early, early yeah. stage of CG. Maybe it's my yeah my bias towards practical effects, but I think like some of this shit still looks better than most effects today. Like this shit holds up in my opinion pretty Agreed. heavy. Agreed, and I think it's because it's in shot, mm-hmm. it's in camera, it's there, it's lit. A lot of those effects were like they did all these crazy practical effects. I'll, I'll try to mention them when we get to certain scenes, like how they did him. It's insane. It's insane that he thought of that stuff. Um, so they incinerate the dog creature. Uh, Blair autopsies the creature and learns that it can perfectly imitate other organisms. Um, they get some data from the Norwegian base, and um, it leads the crew out to a large excavation site, and that's where they find the partially buried alien spacecraft. And the smaller dig site, probably where they got that coffin at. Um, Norris estimates the alien ship has been buried for at least 100,000 years. Uh, one of my favorite bits is they do a, a nice shout out and reference to uh, Eric Von Daniken's Chariot of the Gods, talking about how aliens have been colonizing Earth for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Uh, if you don't know, that's the book that led later to the show Ancient Aliens. Mm. Um, Blair grows paranoid that the creature could assimilate all life on Earth in a matter of years. And the station implements controls to reduce the risk of assimilation. At this point, this is where the paranoia really starts to set in. They, they're all like, whoa. Um Yeah, the, the, the doctor uh, at this point, he goes on his computer and uh starts making calculations of uh, how long right. it take for the, the thing to uh, unpopulate take over. the earth. <laughs> yeah. Which, what is he, like, what is he plugging these figures into, though? I'm curious. Like, yeah, it seems, it's, yeah, like, how, like, how is he getting these numbers? Like, I believe him, but. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh. I don't know, maybe the only thing I could think of is maybe he was using like the model of how a virus replicates. Sure. Oh, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. There's probably some math to I don't know anything about that stuff. Why anyway. are you a scientist and <laughs> we're not, you know? Right. The malformed uh the malformed humanoid creature then assimilates and isolated bendings, but Windows interrupts the process and McCready burns the bendings thing. Blair sabotages, this is because he's paranoid they're going to get away, sabotages all the vehicles, kills the remaining sled dogs, and destroys the radio to prevent escape. Uh, he's like going nuts, that part where he's got the axe. and He's like, you guys don't know anything. I know about He's just like ranting. And they, uh, they end up capturing him, and they imprison him in the tool shed. Uh, Copper suggests a test to compare all their blood against uncontaminated blood held in storage, but after going to check, they find out the blood stores have been destroyed. The men lose faith in Gary because they think he might have done it because he's the only one with a key, and McCready takes command. And there was already like a lot of tension going on in this scene. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, that, was a, that was a pretty cool scene, and it's it's interesting to see how it's the thing must be really smart because it almost plays these guys against each other. Totally. Like it kind of, it, it has to know what it's doing here. And like when, um, like when it takes over a person's body, like it must also take over like their memories and stuff too. Right. I think it has to like merge with them. It must know everything. That's gotta be a terrible feeling if something 
takes you over and you have no control. Like it's it it's controlling you and you know it is, but you can't you do anything. Can't do anything. Yeah. That's kind of how I imagined it because it does seem to know everything and it can mimic them uh, as we get to another scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it takes them over later. at a cellular level. Yeah. Um. McCready, Windows, and Nalls find Fuchs' burned corpse. Surmising he committed suicide to avoid a simulation. That's when he goes out because he sees Blair running around or something. Windows returns to base while McCready and Nalls investigate McCready's shack. On the return, Nalls abandons McCready in a snowstorm, believing he's been assimilated after finding his torn clothes in the shack. This is like one of those things. I don't know if the thing did that or if it was just coincidence. <laughs> The team debates whether to allow McCready inside, but he breaks in and holds the group at bay with dynamite, which is another high-tension scene. During the encounter, though, Norris appears to suffer a heart attack. So at this point, you know, McCready comes back. He's got dynamite. They try to abandon him, and he's holding a flamethrower and some dynamite. (laughs) And he's like, just try and leave me, and I'm going to blow us all up. I I do have a question, um, though. Yeah. Um, do you guys think that Blair was uh, a thing before he was hacking away at the uh, the electronics, or after? I think after. I I think after because yeah because he was blowing those up because he did not want the thing to get away. Yeah. Okay. I and then I, I think it wasn't until later when McGritty said like oh now he wants to freeze now the thing knows that it can't escape so now he's trying to like stay here but I think before he realized that um he was just I do think that after Blair we'll get to that part in a oh minute. sorry I didn't mean to or, you know they, they put they put Blair in the yes, shed I think he I think wanted that's to when he bec- I think that's when he becomes the thing or one of I, them. I think he might have wanted to get isolated and put into the uh, to the shed so he can start making his ship. Mm-hmm. Just a theory. Oh, that's a that's good, a good theory. theory. That's, that's a good theory. theory, man. All right. As Copper attempts to defibrillate Norris, his chest transforms into a large mouth and bites off Copper's arms, killing him. McCready incinerates the Norris thing, but its head detaches. And this is one of the coolest fucking scenes in the so whole good. movie. And attempts to escape before also being burnt. And then McCready is forced to kill Clark in self-defense when the latter lunges at him from behind with a knife. He hypothesizes that the Norris thing's head demonstrated that every part of the thing is an individual life form with its own survival instinct. He has everyone tied up and they're going to test their blood samples with a heated piece of wire. Uh, I want to take a pause right there because I want to talk about the scene where they defibrillate um, Norris. That's one of the crazy effect shots. So they had the fake body and then they had the real actor's head like under a cabinet and they had the fake defibrillator thing and the thing would open. And then they had an actor on top that was wearing a, uh, a copy mask of the other actor copper, but he was, a, he was an actor that um, he was um, paraplegic from the elbows down. Like he didn't have his forearms. So they had his, they made the prosthetic arms, which were made out of a bunch of like stuff and like fake bone and everything. So that when his arms went in, when that thing opened and the arms went in and it bit it and it sprays blood everywhere, he just pulls his regular arms out. And he's like, well, when you watch the behind the scenes of how it was done, it's really cool. Cause that's, it's such a unique practical effect that couldn't have been done if they didn't have that guy and the way they set it all up. And the guy that played Norris had to be in that table for like two days. And he said his neck hurt really bad because he was like stuck in a really awkward spot. They kept checking him. Are you okay? Are you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. (laughs) But anyway, that's a really cool effect shot. And the way they, that's a way. Oh, and the, the part where the head detaches and comes off the table, they, use all these you know this is early days of effects they were using all kinds of chemicals and stuff to make all this stuff and some of that stuff was really flammable they almost set the entire set on fire like rob Oteen talks about some of this stuff he's like he's like oh man it was crazy um so they get all the guys tied up and 
they're testing their blood and McCready's heating up a piece of copper wire with the blowtorch because he figures out, you know, if you if you threaten the thing, it'll transform and show its true form. And uh, everyone passes the test except Palmer, whose um, blood jumps from the heat exposed and the Palmer thing starts to transform. Everybody freaks awesome the fuck out. It breaks breaks free of its bonds, infects windows, and it forces McCready to incinerate them both. Dude, that scene where he just uh, launches into the ceiling is so rad. Yeah. yeah, the the thing that's cool about the thing is that it moves in so many ways. Even when that head detaches and it's on the ground all of a sudden, and it's it still looks so good. It's on the ground, and those eight kind of like spider legs just pop out. They're like and then the, that little like eyeball pops out of the top like a submarine thing and it just starts crawling away i was like oh my god how the fuck did they do that it kind of seems <laughs> like too like depending on the host that it takes it also has like a different form underneath and i'm kind of curious to know like what the true form of the thing looks like like it's oh, yeah. original form it's original yeah. form. i'm really curious about that yeah before we're we'll, we're gonna go into that a little bit but before we do that let's take a quick break so we can identify lots of other awesome shows on ruminations radio network we'll be right back the year is 2043 you're playing fantasy football it is championship week you're trying to set your lineup and you don't know what to do Robert Griffin IV and his top target, Will Fuller VI, have carried you all season, but they're facing a London Jaguars team that has the top defense in the league. Your other quarterback is a 66-year-old Tom Brady who's playing against the much more manageable Toronto Bengals. So you turn to Nick and Elijah of the 25 Yards Later podcast, a production of Sports Obsessive and Ruminations Radio Network. Be a champion. champion. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Retro Futurist Culture Podcast. We are talking about the 1982 film, The Thing by John Carpenter. We're still breaking down the story and we're going to talk about Thing Origins. All right, Kyle, we were talking about where the thing might have come from, its original look. But for now, uh, they did the blood test and. They need to go test Blair. They left him locked out in that tool shed. So they leave Childs on guard, Keith David's character, and they go to find Blair. When they get there, they find that Blair has escaped and has been using vehicle components to assemble a small flying saucer. So he's either out of his fucking mind or he's an alien, (laughs) right? At this point, (laughs) like, what is going on? Uh, On their return, Childs is missing and the power generator is now destroyed. McGrady speculates that the thing intends to return to hibernation until a rescue team arrives. Cause it had to have been listening to them. Cause at one point they mentioned earlier how they're stranded until, until a rescue team comes out. Cause, cause windows couldn't get a hold of anybody on the radio. Yeah. Remember Gary kept saying, get a hold. He's like, I can't get a hold of anybody. We might just have to wait for the team to come back. So, McGrady, Gary, and Nalls decide to detonate the entire station to destroy the thing. And this is a very noble thing because this is going to kill them too. Because if they have nowhere to take shelter, they're going to freeze to death. Uh, They set explosive. Blair comes out and kills Gary and Nalls in probably one of the coolest, like, freaky, the way he just runs up and just sticks his fingers in his face and the fingers, like, assimilate inside of him and then just, like, take over his body. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I don't know if he, I thought that was awesome. Um, and then nalls disappears and he then transforming into an enormous creature the blair thing destroys the detonator mccrady triggers the explosives using a stick of dynamite and that destroys the base mccrady sits nearby as the station burns childs returns saying he became lost in the storm while pursuing blair exhausted and slowly freezing to death they acknowledge the futility of their distrust and they uh they're sharing that last bottle of jane b that uh 
McCready had. Um, it's kind of a, a depressing ending because we don't really know if Childs. I don't think Childs is the thing, but neither of them is going to survive that day. Yeah, yeah, they're both dead. I, I was. I thought that this time watching it too, I was like, what if Childs is the thing? All that was for nothing. It gets what it wants. It freezes. It lives another day. Uh, They could totally make a sequel out of this. I kind of hope they don't. But um, if they did, they would CG the hell out of it for sure. Oh, yeah. So it's never been released, but there was an alternate ending shot that showed McCready getting out um and getting his blood they test his blood and he gets out and he explains what happened um they talk about that on that documentary that's on the uh the blu-ray and 4k so uh, i don't want to spoil any more details of that but i was like oh that's really interesting but they decided to stick to the original ending um sort of the original ending kind of ends with the paranoia and the distrust of each other right Mm -hmm. (laughs) like the whole theme of the movie feeling of who can you trust yeah um so overall uh like you know we're not going to do rankings but as far as horror sci-fi movies goes where does this rate for you gentlemen since you guys are the ruminations of red rum um as far as practical effects um it's hard to be john carpenter uh and 80s it's hard to be 80s john carpenter that's that's peak practicals, right? Um, sci-fi, it's oof, it's gotta be it's gotta be like top five, right? God sci-fi horror? At least Yeah, it's pretty up there. I think I mean it's it it's up there with Alien. You yes. know what I mean? It's in that same sort of like it's sci-fi, but it's horror. Yeah, it was it has the comparison between the two and I I haven't seen Alien in a long time, so I can't I, I couldn't really um, figure out which one would come out on top, but um, this is a damn good film. It's, it's, it's perfect in my opinion. Yeah. Science fiction and horror to me isn't um, like, I'm not a huge fan of science fiction and horror, um, except for like particular situations like this, where it blends the two together. So perfect where it almost like creates its own genre. <laughs> and right. I, I, I really think this movie has stood the test of time because I mean, it's, it's almost a perfect movie. Like I like there's nothing wrong with it. I think that um it keeps the audience engaged by you sharing the same paranoia as what the characters are going through. You're constantly trying to guess which one is the thing along with the characters of the movie. It's like you all are on this ride together. Um and it's just a really cool experience, especially your first viewing of the film. Um is a very very interesting and unique experience and that being so unique is I think what makes it stand the test of time because there's not a lot of movies like it. And since then it's, it's tried to been done again, but it just, it doesn't have the same impact as this had. And I, I just love this movie. I adore this movie. And, um, the practical effects like Ian was saying are like almost second to none. I think it still holds up beautifully. Um, and there's even shots of the creature that gross me out and freak me out. They're pretty freaky, and, man. <laughs> yeah, like it's hard for me to get like like freaked out about stuff like that, like visual stuff like that. And the spiders and the legs and the way it crawls around, it's just, it's terrifying. I love it. And when he's doing like one of the early autopsies in one of those bodies, and he's like breaking parts of it off like giant lobster yeah. legs or something. And he's just like, and he's just, going at it like there's nothing wrong i would probably be barfing in a bucket on the side if that was my job because it's like what are you even looking at or like it's it's uh they did a really good job of making those mutilated bodies and everything look really good and they did a good job like you said of 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 paying nod to the original adaptation that howard hawks Mm -hmm. did um and there was the was it 2011 there was prequel. a thing prequel, which was I, and and uh, for a minute we're not going to go too deep into that. I really wanted to love that movie because I just love the thing, and I like that they 
like were really accurate to the Norwegian set and they like went back and did a lot of stuff. But the overall story of that one was so unforgettable. I don't think I've ever watched it again. Like it never, I was never compelled to go watch the 2011 one again after I watched it. I was like, oh, wasn't that good? Yeah, I, like, I haven't seen it, but if I understand correctly, that's what happened at the Norwegian camp, right? Prior to the, okay. Yep. So like, yeah, they're basically I don't know, I, telling that story. I think it kind of shares the same perspective as like, uh, like the prequel Star Wars or something. Like it's almost cool when you didn't, like you had an idea of what happened, but you didn't know for sure what happened. And like that mystery of of that camp being destroyed, like was kind of intriguing. And now to be shown everything, it's like the Boba Fett thing, or like seeing where he came from. Like it, like he was such a mystery. Like Boba Fett was such a mystery, and he was cool, and that mystery was cool. But like seeing his background, seeing where yeah, he grew up, it kind of less exactly, is more. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's and that's like a weird thing that Hollywood really like grabbed on too hard in the last 20 years they're like we got to tell the complete origin of these characters from everywhere and it's like no no you don't <laughs> like it, they're almost more interesting when you don't know all that backstory exactly. like we don't know the backstory of the guys in this movie we learn a little bit about them we learn that mccrady likes to drink whiskey uh that he's a helicopter pilot he's kind of a hothead but he's also really smart right you know um you know, things like that. We learn just enough about the characters, you know, and there also seems to be a little bit of, even before the thing comes into that base, those guys maybe don't all really trust each other all that well. There seems to be some animosity before the thing really infiltrates all of them, um, where Childs and McCready don't really trust each other, you know? There's a, there's a little bit of history with some of these characters, and that's that's good writing there when the characters are already, like, riffing off of each other without having to go into this backstory of, Oh, that's because one time he stole this or did this to me or, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, I don't know. it's, it's good writing when the characters are already very established without knowing anything about them. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah. And they, and they did a good job. Like, um, what's his name? The, the dog handler Clark. Yes, Clark. I like you know, you can tell that he really loves the dogs. And you know, when that dog came, he thought, Oh, it's just another beautiful dog, and I'm gonna keep it, you know. And then when he finds out that Blair killed those dogs, you know, he goes right down there and he's mortified to see like all the dogs dead plus the thing dog, you know. Yeah. Um, you can tell that really kind of pissed him off <laughs> or even when like kurt russell's character like starts to shoot the dogs in the monster form and he tries to stop them like even though he knows that they, like it's dead like right yeah. yeah and there's even like uh there's that moment too where um not fuchs but uh who's the cook guy uh, nulls Nulls. Nulls. Yeah, he's in the kitchen. He's listening to um, Stevie Wonder. Yeah. yeah, and he's listening to him really loud. And um, you know, one of the first guys, the the first guy that gets kind of turned into the creature, you know, before he's turned into the creature, Bennings. He's like, Nulls, can you turn that down? I've been shot today. Like <laughs> and Nulls is like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And after he leaves, he doesn't even touch the dial. He's like, whatever. He just kind of waves him off like you guys don't know him. Yeah. Cooking here all day. You guys are just not appreciating. Ungrateful. Yeah. Yeah. This this cast is very, very well done. I think the writing is absolutely fantastic. Every character has their own different personalities and they're widely different. Yeah, agreed. They were all really good. All the actors really worked off each other. They talk about on the uh, behind the scenes. So they were shooting this. I mean, there was multiple locations, but a brunt of the movie was shot on sound stages in Los Angeles. And they had these cooled down refrigerated sets, you know, because it's supposed to be Antarctica. And they're wearing all this cold weather gear. And then it would be lunchtime. And they're like starving. Like, we want to go get a hamburger or something. And we go outside and it would be 100 degrees in the L.A. summer. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, for a while we were changing. But then it would take too long to get back in makeup and everything. So we were just going from wearing these 
you know, parkas and everything in the freezing cold sets to going out in the heat and eating. And then we'd get all hot and sweaty. We'd come back in the cold sets and they were getting sick. Like the guys were getting like the flu and stuff because they were messing with their temperature. I think you can tell that was- in certain scenes as well, especially with um, Kurt Russell's character. He sounds like he has a cold in some of the, in some of the scenes. Yeah, the part where he and I, maybe it's just really good acting, but the part where they they leave him out to die and he comes back yeah. with the dynamite and the flamethrower, yeah, he 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 almost looks like he has a fever or something. He's just like he's kind of out there and like it's method acting, <laughs> yeah, possibly. Although I don't see Kurt Russell as a yeah, method actor. <laughs> So uh, upon original release, the movie did not do well. Uh, even critically, it wasn't very well received. Um, you know, they praised the special effects, but they criticized the visual repulsiveness of it. Um, it made its money back, but it didn't make a lot of money. Um, a lot of critics found it was really nihilistic you know, compared to something like Mm -hmm. E.T. Later on, you know, cable, VHS, and DVD, it's definitely, like, become... And that's that seems to be the case for a lot of John Carpenter's movies. I think the only movie of his that was, like, an instant hit was Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think he's had a couple other pretty decent hits. I know Christine did pretty good. Escape from New York did pretty good. But a lot of his other movies... They never like caught wildfire. I mean, they made, he always made money, but they never took off until later. Later, the, the fans find it. And like, I don't know about you guys when I, anybody I know, it's like, oh, have you seen this? And they're like, no, I'm like, oh my God, you got to watch this. And then they watch one John Carpenter movie and they're like, what other movies did he do? And then it becomes this rabbit hole. So, what do you think it is about like physical uh, media where like something gets put to physical media and that's where it takes off? Do you think it's just because more people have access to it? Uh, possibly. Well, and also like it's, I think the thing that's cool about physical media, the one thing I've always loved about it is you can loan it to people, Mm. right? (laughs) You can be like, oh, you got to check out this movie here, borrow this. And then you can't loan people your stream. I mean, you could give them your streaming login, but you know, now you got these streaming companies wanting to charge you extra money if they find out that somebody else is using your login, which is just crazy. Right. That's a good point though. Like you're sharing it with like-minded people that would probably have the same interests as you maybe. And like, yeah, just kind of sp- spreading. Spreading the spreading love. love. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Any other, you guys got any thoughts on the thing? What, why should people watch this movie? Ooh, that's a toughie. Ian, take it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a perfect mystery. Um, Great practical effects, great directing, great cinematography, uh, great acting. That was Dean. <laughs> that was uh, Dean Cudley, as far as cinematography goes. And that guy. Oh. Let's just pull this up real quick because uh, when I read you the amount of films and what films this guy did, you're going to be like, "Oh, well, no wonder it looks so damn good." He also did the. Uh, he was also the uh, DP on Halloween. Oh. Um, but let's see here, here, here we go. Here's the, the cinematographer, Dean Cudley. You ready? We're just going to go the, the highest of highs. Cause there's, cause he's done a lot of fucking movies. Guy. <laughs> Woo. Ready? Uh, let's start with like his first big hits. Uh, well, he did some schlock here in the beginning. Halloween. Boom. Rock and roll high school. The fog escape from New York. So he worked with John Carpenter wow. a lot early. Yeah. Halloween 2, The Thing, Halloween 3, um, Psycho 2, Romancing the Stone. Psycho uh, 2, underrated. Right. Back to the Future. Back to the Future. Big Trouble in Little China. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Roadhouse. Love Roadhouse. Back to the Future 2 and 3. Right. Um, Hook, Death Becomes Her, Jurassic Park. The Flintstones, live action, Casper, Apollo 13. Um, so if you were wondering why all 80s movies are shot the exact same way, it's it's due to <laughs> one that guy. Same light, that same blue light filter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's just he's done a, a ton of stuff. Yeah. That's 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 a nice so, resume. Uh, Very nice resume. Yeah. So that 
he's a uh, he was quite a well. And then the effects we had, you know, Rob Bottin's first big movie, and then Stan Winston helped a little bit. Um, and even the matte. So they had I can't remember his name, but he was the matte painter that did a lot of stuff for Hitchcock. He did the matte paintings for the mm. movie. And it's kind of crazy to when you see it, like, oh, that was a matte painting. Holy crap. Like he did some really, wow. really impressive uh stuff. And the and the production designer too worked at Universal for years and had a long history in film. So it was a it was an A tier list production from the top down. Out of curiosity, so, yeah. where does this rank in your John Carpenter films? Ooh, let's do that. John Carpenter, top three or top five? <laughs> Top three. <laughs> top, top three. Top three. Top three. Top three. Mine are kind of easy. One's surprising. Oh, God. Let's see. I mean, two of them we, we've already mentioned by name. Finding the third one that I would put in that... Uh, Among that pedigree shit. Dude. Obviously, Ghost of Mars is one of them, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh. No, fortunately not. Yeah, so the thing is definitely close to my favorite John Carpenter movie. Close to my favorite. In the top three, for top three? sure. Okay. Um, and I really, I got to put Halloween in there because mm. Jesus, I mean, that created its own genre. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's another movie that's really, really well written, well shot, still holds up when every time I, I watch the original Halloween every Sorry. year, still holds mm -hmm. up. Ooh. You know, I think because I love it so much, I think number three has got to be They Live, which I did on this show. Very nice. There are actually so many John Carpenter movies I have yet to see, believe it or not. Um, he did a lot. Yeah, yeah, he did a lot. So what's your number two and one, though? I oh, I thought you said yeah. your number three was... So number one is oh, the okay. thing. Number two is Halloween. Okay, okay. Number three is They Live for me. Ian, shoot. I'm gonna go. It's 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 also really hard. I'm gonna go The Thing. I'm gonna go Escape from New York as number two. Nice. And then number three, kind of an oddball, but uh, Assault on Precinct 13. That movie's that was amazing. Fucking great, man. For yeah. like the money that was spent, the tension in yes. that movie is great. Mm -hmm. And it's that formula has been ripped off in so many other movies. Like so many movies stole that, you know, kind of idea. You can tell it's an early so. Carpenter film and it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Kyle. I'm going to get a lot of hate for this and I understand, <laughs> but oh, I have, to, say it. I have <laughs> to do it. I have to do it. Okay. So number three is, is, is going to be the thing. That's my number three. Um, it made the top three. Uh, shout out, though, to Assault on Precinct 13. That's my number four. Number one is going to be Halloween. Halloween is a fantastic right. slasher, fantastic horror right. movie. Just fantastic. Nail-biter. Great movie. Love it. Number two is Escape from L.A. I know. Oh, my God. I know. I like Escape from L.A. more than The Thing. I know that's crazy. I think Escape from L.A., is like almost peak Carpenter. <laughs> I hate to say that on this cast, but I think it's like a perfect action movie. I think it embodies 90s perfectly. And I think... There's a, there's a cynicism about it that's amazing. Like he literally made a movie in the Hollywood system yeah. that shits on the Hollywood system. Exactly. And that's what people don't understand about it. People that don't understand him or his films, yes. they watch that and go, this was just a bad movie. I was like, no, you don't understand what he was exactly. doing. Like he's totally shitting on the whole system in this movie. He was so pissed off at Hollywood by that point. Oh my God. Yeah. I That... I think that's a great choice, Kyle. And I, I like for me, it's it's he's just made so many good movies that that movie's a little further sure, down my list. Sure, sure. But I still and love like, it. I understand Escape from New York because um, everybody compares New York and L.A., but they're trying to do so different things. And I 
right. love New York. New York is a near perfect movie. I think that's a great film. It's just if I had to choose between the two, I would choose LA. Sure. Well, that was like me trying to pick. So for me, it was like they live, escape from New York. Um, you know, uh, what's the other one I really like? Uh, Big Trump, Little China, oh, yeah. Escape from LA, uh, Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness. They're all kind of like at this level. Where I'm like, mm-hmm. oh man, how do I pick the one that's better than those other five? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> so, ah, totally. uh, well, shit, vampires. Boys. This has been good. a good time. I that's another one where it gets a bad rap. That's a really fun movie. It's really schlocky, but it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, maybe uh, maybe if you boys want to do some more carpenter horror on your show, uh, got a little buddy here. I'll come. Yeah, on. we got to get you on. <laughs> Absolutely, have a good old time. We got to get you on. We're gonna be covering Ghost of Mars uh, if we do a John Carpenter film, though. It's, let's it's, do it. It's gotta be done. Like it's. <laughs> Uh, yeah, let's not let's not talk about it on this episode. But yeah, I'd love to go talk about that movie. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you. Uh, this has been Hoptimus with Retro Futures Culture. I've been joined by the fine gentleman from Ruminations of Red Rum, a fellow podcast on Ruminations Radio Network. You got any last shout-outs for us, Kyle with the K or Ian Square? Um, I would say if you're interested in following us on social networks, we have Twitter. Um, it's at of Red Rum, OF Red Rum. Um, we also have a Discord group where you can come hang out with us. We talk about horror movies. We post a lot of horror-related stuff. We celebrate games, movies, comics, books, all that kind of stuff. And Ian actually moderates it. So if you're looking to join that, we can... Um, or actually, you could join through a link on our Twitter bio. So. All right, guys. You've been listening to the Retro Futures Culture Productions of Ruminations Radio Network. Please subscribe, rate, and review our show. We'd love to connect with you on our social media on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Futurist Retro. Visit ruminationsradionetwork.com for additional great shows such as Cinephile Hissy Fit, Ruminations of the Red Room, Brevity Box, Oh God, It Hurts, lots of fun shows. For all your burning questions and feedback, drop us a line at ruinationsradio at gmail.com. Ruminations Radio Network.